0: Uh, church mouse syndrome is kind of what I call it. Um, It's okay to say like yes and amen if you hear something you like. If you hear something you don't like, just sit there quietly, okay? Don't be rude. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, So this morning we're just gonna open up in prayer. Um, We're gonna pray for, get that slide, Kate. Uh, We're gonna pray for a local church in our body, Christ Community Church, uh, Pastor Rick Prettyman. Uh, and his wife, Julie Prettyman, uh, and they're uh, six kids. The top three there are biological. The bottom three are adopted, um, and so they're a really cool family. Uh, and then they've got their team members in the church as well, Nathan Abels, who went to Texas Tech with me, so Reckham Tech. Um, Nathan Abels is a good guy, and then Benjamin Moore in the worship. Um, and then we're going to pray for an unreached people group, the Thai people group, the, actually the Northern Thai. They're kind of spread throughout Thailand and Laos. Um, And this is a people that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, They have very near 7.5 million people, um, 0.4% Christian, and actually like 0.27% evangelical Christian. Uh, Their main religion is Buddhism, so that's a dark, dark place. Uh, And then we're going to pray for our morning, so let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father God, you are so, so good. Uh, We just praise you for the ability to uh, be here This morning, God, we praise you for the ability to uh, sing truths to you, Father. We pray uh, and just praise uh, the ability to study your written word um, and to just enjoy you, God. Um, Not only that, but we just thank you for giving us partners like Christ Community Church, God. We pray that they be worshiping you um, this morning. Uh, God, we just pray that your spirit be on that church, Father, that you be getting glory uh, as uh, Pastor Prettyman is just bringing your word, Father God. We just pray for a people uh, that are enjoying you um, and that are being equipped as well. Um, And God, we pray for the Northern Thai people. Um, This morning, there are not very many people there worshiping you, God. Um, God, we just ask that you Uh, that you just be in that place, God. Whether that's uh, 0.4%, God, or 0.2%, or whatever percentage that is, God, we ask that you raise those 0.2% up um, and just uh, spread your glory in that place, God. God, raise up people among us here in the United States or wherever uh, to go to Thailand, Um, but burden our hearts. If it's not us who goes, burden our hearts to pray for those people. Uh, such that your glory can be uh, just manifest and, and, and spread all throughout Thailand, God. God, we just love you and praise you for uh, giving us uh, the, the brothers and sisters in Thailand uh, that are there, uh, but we just ask that you increase your number there. Um, God, and lastly, we just pray for this morning uh, again, God, um, that you get glory for it, Father, that, that we be equipped, um, that we just be attentive to your Holy Spirit, Um, And that you teach us and train us to do uh, your will outside of these four walls, Father. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So, it's going to be a simple morning this morning. Basically, I'm just going to pose a question. And then we're going to read uh, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Then we're going to kind of dive into it a little bit. Um, And then I'm going to pull out two application points. Um, And so while we do have somewhat of a long warning, I promise I'm going to try to like make it quick-ish, but it's going to be a little bit longer. But it'll be fine. We'll have a good time. So the question, it's a simple question. What do you believe? It's about the most simple question you can ask, but at the same time, it is something that we have all struggled with at one time or, or another in our life. What do you believe? And I'll go one step further and say, what do you believe about Christ, and I would even venture to say that a high percentage of us in here are struggling with that right now, and that's okay, um, but what do you believe? So let's look at what the world might have us believe about Jesus. Okay, so we've got this super ethereal Jesus here. Um, this image off to the left is, has been around forever, I don't even know where Jesus was when he posed for this or how this came about. Um, I, my grandmother actually had a painting similar to this up in her house. Um, this is the ethereal spiritual Jesus that we all pretty much picture I think. And then this is another image of super white uh, Jesus in this amazing pure tunic. Uh, this guy can't even eat spaghetti in that tunic because it'll just be all over him. That wouldn't last 15 minutes in the old world or Neil's closet, Um, but when I googled Jesus these are like the first two images that came up. Um, No lie, either my algorithm is messed up or we kind of picture Jesus in this world very, very differently. So then I got to kind of thinking, okay, maybe these are old images of Jesus, what is like pop culture Jesus, right? So this is the next thing that came up. Um, and, And first and foremost, I went down a dark hole with this one, okay? Uh, Be careful Googling pop culture Jesus. So we got Brad Pitt Jesus. This is like exemplifying the cool factor of Jesus these days. Um, And then everybody remembers the dumpster fire that is uh, Jesus is my homeboy. And don't lie and say that you didn't own this shirt because I bet a ton of people in here might even still own the shirt. But that's kind of what pop culture is telling us about Jesus. So then... I kind of got to thinking, well, this is Greenville. This isn't exactly like New York or pop culture, central, anything. So what does like Greenville Jesus kind of look like? And this is what I came up with. Right, We've we've got NRA Jesus over here and we've got Jesus with the lamb. And so I'll pick on Grace, you know, Grace Peterson, she's from Chicago. I can only imagine what it was like coming down to Greenville and thinking, well, I guess I'm gonna go to a cowboy church, right? Um, So these are kind of the images, obviously, this is, I'm just being facetious here, and these are, you know, foolish images of Jesus. But unfortunately, these are the things that we get inundated with about Jesus. Um, I mean, these are the things that we see all the time. And Edward R. Murrow once said this about the Vietnam War. Anyone who isn't confused doesn't really understand the situation. He's saying this about the Vietnam War, about how complex it is. But I would venture to say that Christianity is not that much different. Anyone who isn't confused kind of ought to be, because we've got all these different theologies. We've got doctrines for days. We've got different denominations. I mean, we believe something different than they believe. We've got all these factions, and we've got uh, five ways to live a purpose-driven life. And there's all this confusion around us. If we aren't truly confused... <laughs> then maybe we don't really know the situation. But amid all of this, what is real Christianity? What is a real Christian? How do we know we got a hold of the real thing? How do we know we got a hold of the goods? You see, that is what John is writing this letter. That is why John is actually writing this very letter. He poses some very difficult questions and different tests. So it's kind of funny. I I titled this sermon, The Litmus Test, First John gives us several different litmus tests to prove if we've got the real stuff. You know, he talked about, you know, Greg and, and Jason actually talked a little bit about this moral test, okay, sin, and, and are we righteous, this morality test. And then they also kind of touched on a little bit of this love test, right? You know me by how you love each other. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit more in the next couple of weeks. But today we're going to talk about the morality test. Or excuse me, we're going to talk about the doctrine test. We're going to talk about what we actually believe in. So let's see what John has to tell us about this. In 1 John 4, 1 through 6, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. I promise I'm not going to show a timeline every single time that I preach, but it's kind of my thing, and I think we have to look into it. So, Kate, beautiful. This is kind of a a lot of stuff going on. I just want to hit a few of the highlights of what's going on in 1 John, Um, and Morris covered this like four months ago, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But we got Jesus born, Jesus' death and resurrection. We'll spend some time on that here in a couple of weeks. Uh, Stephen martyred and Paul saved. Uh, that's very, very, very important. First of all, because Paul saved. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. Stephen martyred. It's very, very difficult to be a Christian in this time. Then we've got Paul's third missionary journey. Why did I put Paul's third missionary journey on there? Because this letter is written to a group around Ephesus. It's written to a bunch of house churches around the town of Ephesus. And Paul ministered to the Ephesians In that third missionary journey, actually ministered to him twice, coming and going. So then 60 to 63 AD, Paul was arrested in Rome, wrote the Ephesian letter there. um, And we'll see a lot of those ties back to the Ephesians in this letter. Um, And then uh, 64 to 68, Peter and Paul were both, both martyred. Again, just highlighting that it is tough to be a Christian in this time. Then we go to 70 A.D., that's when the Colosseum was started. I always put that in there because that is a big thing in history. And so I really want to connect that this is these are real people in a real time frame. Uh, so Vespasian started the, the Colosseum in 70 A.D. It was finished in 80 A.D. by Titus. Um, and about 85 A.D. was when uh, the book of 1 John was written by John, uh, which I would say is a son of, son of Zebedee. So by John in, give or take, 85 AD. Now, why is that important to know? Because I want, to, I want you guys to note that this is about 50 years after Christ died. 50 years. John is an old man at this point. He was one of the younger disciples. Um, at this point, he is likely one of the last, if not the very last apostle still living. And that's important because, to note, the, the apostolic era is about over. And in, that, in this time frame, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the canonized New Testament at all. So how did they know about Jesus? Well, they saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. But if they weren't there, if a group of people weren't there, they depended on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And who were the eyewitnesses? The apostles, Right? And so we're kind of at the end of an age where those eyewitnesses are now dying or are gone. So just something to keep in mind, that timeline. Um, And then uh, at 100 AD, John dies on the island of Patmos right after he wrote Revelation. And then we've got 1517 AD, the Reformation, 2022, Crosspoint Fellowship. Another very important thing to note. So, again, a high level. It's tough to be a Christian in this time frame. And First John is written to a people who are struggling with what they believe. They're absolutely struggling with what they believe. You see, they heard these things, and then 50 years later, 40 years later, you've got other people kind of coming in. You've got pop culture. Um, you've got the end of eyewitness accounts, and now you've just got leadership telling you what Jesus was and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of a confusing time. And oh, by the way... To believe this, to be a Christian, you likely gave up your job, your family, your whole livelihood, um, and in, in several cases, your life. Now, I don't want to say that every single you know, early Christian was, was martyred. Okay? There, were some, there were some early Christians that like, had great lives and silver platters and all that good stuff. But by and large, the norm was it was very, very, very difficult to be a Christian, because this is a Roman-occupied area. This is a, like Rome took over this area, they got soldiers everywhere, it's difficult to be a Christian. So, if you're struggling with what you believe, that's not a good place to be, because you gave up everything for this thing that you believe, and now you're kind of wavering on it. So now that you kind of know what, uh, what the people of Rome were kind of thinking, Let's talk about John, First John 4 specifically. And in this chapter, he's addressing these deceivers, these people that are deceiving um, the, the Christians. Remember, we've got all kinds of influences. We've got pop culture influences. We've got Roman influences. We've got um, these people that are, you know, having very great messages or these, these great motivational speakers kind of coming in and, and wavering what... The first, the people in First John, these house churches in Ephesus, are actually believing. Now, something else to keep in mind: uh, if you know, I'm not quite old yet, uh, but as a seasoned person, I know like my grandparents used to love, love, love telling me what they know and what they learned. And so, First John, in this, John is basically saying, "Hey, this is what you need to know. This is what's really, really, really important." In all my life, this is, these are the things that I learned that is very, very, very important. And so, actually, in 1 John, uh, I think he uses the words, know this, like 30 plus times. And he uses other words like, have confidence in this. And this is the message. What he's basically trying to say is, hey, listen up here. Listen up. So, uh, with that being said, let's just go ahead and dive into the, the scripture that we have this morning All we're going to do is just chew verse by verse by verse, Um, and then I'm going to stop and kind of give a little monologue about each verse and kind of where it ties in. Some monologues will be very, very short. Some monologues will be very long, but it will be fun. So, 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. All this is saying, all, all, all verse 1 is saying is, watch what you believe. If you hear someone claiming to be a herald of God's word, or claiming to know the truth, and say stuff contrary to the gospel, then that is just wrong. That is just wrong. You see, verse 1 says, there are a lot of false prophets out there, and they are talking foolishness. Who are these false prophets? So if we looked at, and we're not going to, but if you turn back to chapter 2, verse 19, it tells us exactly who these people are. They are people from within the actual church. They are literally a group of people that are within the belief system that they are a part of. And not only are they people, but they are teachers, They are teachers of that church, okay? They are leaders of that church. And they have now gone out and they didn't just, okay, yes, they left the church, but they didn't leave. They like set up shop across the street because the later verses are telling us that they're going to try to bring in people as their disciples. They're going to try to bring in people to believe what they believe. But they don't believe anything what a Christian would believe. You see, they set up shop on a completely different kind of Jesus, so verse 2, let's read a little, bit longer, or a little bit further. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in flesh is from God. So John is saying here, how do you know what is true and what to believe? He says, if they say, if Jesus came in flesh. Now that's a weird thing to say. That's a little bit awkward, right? That Jesus came in flesh. Why would he say that? You see in this time period there was a prominent untruth circulating the church to which John is writing specifically in Ephesians. See apparently some people were teaching that God never really took on human form. God really never came in the human of Jesus. They said that human flesh is sinful, evil, bad and just plain yucky. So God may have appeared as a human in Jesus but did not really take on flesh. Basically, they're trying to separate this divine God and Jesus, the man. And you end up with ethereal Jesus that we saw. Interestingly, Paul had warned the elders of the church of Ephesus decades earlier, when he actually came on their journey, um, he said in Acts 20, 29 through 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, Not sparing the flock, and from from among you or from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And Paul even alluded to this again in his second letter to Timothy, who was a leader at that church. Okay, so clearly around Ephesus, this Roman-occupied city, there was this very distinct belief system that was arising. And you can kind of see that that would happen because we are 50 years after Christ's crucifixion. The further out you go, the kind of this warped nature of people are trying to believe this and believe that. I mean, here we are, 2,000 years later, and when I when I Googled pop culture Jesus, Kanye West came up. Right? It's a it's a it's a weird thing. As time goes along, you can kind of see this twisted um, message that is being heard and preached. So now these false teachers had come, teaching that Christ was not fully human. Is this teaching academic? Is this teaching purely something that was like, okay, well, let's save that for the seminary professors. Let's let powerhouses like Paul Tripp and Matt Chandler debate that type of theology. And I would say, no, not at all, not at all. And you might say, well, Neil, I'm not like a theology type person. Okay, well, if you take a math test and you fail it miserably, And you come back and you say, I'm just not a math person. And I would likely probably say, well, how long did you study for that test? And you might say, well, no, not at all. Well, stop saying you're not a math person if you never actually studied math. And in the same way, I think it's very, very important that we study theology. And you might say something like, well, Neil, I'm not a brainiac. Okay, so I would say two things to that. First and foremost, I love theology. I also really love watching kung-fu movies and getting up in our living room and doing karate, okay? I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, I promise. I'm a complete moron when it comes to stuff like that. And number two, I would say that in Lauren and I's house, on our bookshelf, we have a children's Jesus storybook Bible. Lauren and I do not have children, okay? We actually read this thing, right? And we've got catechisms and stuff like that. I'm not saying you have to go out and study Wayne Grudem's systematic theology to figure everything out in life. All I'm saying is we should know the basics. We should really study the basics. And if you don't know the basics, you'll kind of just believe whatever, right? If you don't know what you believe, you'll just believe whatever. So I think it's really important that we should be considering this fully divine, fully human Jesus. Now, Listen, if you don't know what you believe, it's okay. Like, that's an okay place to be. Uh, Hear me say that, hear me say that. If you don't know what to believe, that is completely okay. But I would also offer this caveat that we have to figure out what we believe. It's It's not an okay place to stay. So, without a fully human and a fully divine mediator, we cannot have an atoning sacrifice for the sins that we need. If you want a nice, tidy verse about this, Hebrews 2.17 is amazing. But if you only imagine the ethereal, ghostly Jesus that we saw at the beginning of the morning because that's what you've been inundated with or maybe that's what was up in your grandma's house or whatever, then we're at risk of actually missing it. If I'm honest, that ethereal Jesus can't help me at all. That ethereal Jesus can't help us in the addiction, can't help us in the bitterness, the brokenness, because he's never known it. Right. See, Jesus, according to John, was in the mud, the blood, the mess, the crushed dreams, and the heartache. John responds with no uncertainty that Jesus had a real human body. John had seen Jesus' body. He had heard Jesus talk. He had even touched Jesus. You see, verse 2 says, True false spirits or teachings can be recognized by this. That Jesus, or that if they, if they say, so basically truth can be recognized by this, that Jesus had flesh. And this should kind of tickle your ears and say, the whole point of this is if the doctrine sounds off, check it. If something up here, something from the pulpit, something outside, if the doctrine sounds off, check it. We must get our doctrine right, specifically on that of Christ because our whole belief system hangs on it. Our salvation depends on the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, and if you take away the physical body, there is no sacrifice. Only a human can sacrificially stand in the place of humanity. On the other hand, if you take away the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, his sacrifice loses his, its infinite worth and ability to exhaust God's wrath. Only an infinite God himself could act as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And you can read about that in 1 John 2, too. You see, the sacrifice of the one who is fully God and fully man was necessary for the guilty to be reconciled. And that is a super awkward truth that 1 John is bringing out. But without that, that is the only doctrine that makes what happened on the cross make sense. You see, if you take out that whole humanity-divinity thing. You'll have a nice, tidy gospel or maybe a nice, tidy philosophy, but you do that at risk of forfeiting the very nature and character of Jesus. We must guard this truth that in his love for us, God himself took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died the death sinners deserve, and then arose over sin and death victorious. This is a biblical truth that cannot be denied. And so... Kate, that next slide. I thought this was really cool. Okay, does everybody recognize this? I saw this in a couple of cars outside. I've even seen like people get tattoos of it. No big deal. Um, so this is kind of funny, and and I I say all this this heavy theological stuff. Lauren and I were sitting sitting on the couch about a week and a half ago, and um, we were talking about the ichthus. We were watching watching a show, and it kind of came up. And, and she started telling me the story of the ichthus, And I must admit, I'm from Green or I'm from, sorry, whoa, I'm not from Greenville, Texas. I'm not, I don't, I don't like NRA Jesus. Okay, uh, I'm actually from a place way worse, called Clifton, Texas. And it's got 2,000, 3,000 people, super small town. We're behind the times on everything. Um, and uh, when I was there, I actually started following Christ uh, pretty late on in high school, and this was very popular. The ictus was very, very popular. Um, I didn't care for it at all. I just thought it was like this pop culture reference, and so I get it. It's the fish thing. It's really cool, um, but I didn't necessarily know the history until Lauren started kind of describing it to me, and then I, uh, I, I did some research. You see, back in the old days, uh, we're talking first and second century, people would walk everywhere. They didn't have cars, so they'd walk, um, and if you could imagine driving down Jack Finney here, and every time you see a car, that being a person, so you're driving next to a to a car, and right, that's a person, obviously. Well, if you have to walk somewhere, you're naturally walking with that person. It was a very communicative time. And so you would naturally, if you're going from this city to this city, you'd join this group of people, you'd walk together, you'd rest together, you'd get to that city, you'd have a meal, whatever. It was a very, um, very communicative type culture. And so uh, say you're talking to this traveler, and... Um, the conversation started getting a little bit deeper because your AirPods are not in, you're not listening to music, you're just talking. Um, Something that you could do as a Christian if you wanted to get a little bit deeper was you could uh, get a stick in the dirt and draw an arc. You could draw like the first portion of the ichthys and it just might be a casual sign, right? Well, if the person that you're talking to sees what you're doing, reaches down and completes the arc into the ichthys, that's like this Christian secret handshake. Now, it would have been pretty uncommon because there wasn't a ton of Christians, but that's kind of how you could know each other. That's kind of how you could like dip your toe in the water and you could take a sigh of relief if that other traveler drew that ichthus. You know, okay, I'm talking to a Christian and maybe you can kind of bond over your belief system or you can bond over even your hardship because likely you were going through some hardships. So I thought, Wow, that's pretty cool. Not only that, is um, the ictus was actually a mark over um, like where a house church would meet. They found these, you know, like archaeological findings found these ictuses all over catacombs. And so if you're ministering to somebody in the city and they're like, hey, I need to hear more about this, and you're inviting them to church, you don't give them the address of the church, right? You say, go down to the catacombs, take a left here, take a right there, and look for the ichthus on the wall, and I thought that was really, really cool. Like it's this symbol. Like here, this is what you look for. But what I didn't understand, um, what I had no idea of, I get the whole fish thing. I get like the belly of the well and the Jonah thing and the fish and three days, and that that was foreshadowing for Jesus, the whole fish thing. I get the Peter through the net over, pulls in fish. Um, and and an abundance of them. I get Matthew four nineteen, come and I will make you fishers of men. I get all that stuff, but what I had no idea was ichthus is actually an acronym. It is actually an acronym. We've got the iota, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma. Um, and obviously, I'm not gonna read that in Greek, but use your imagination. If you translate it in English, it says Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And now. That might be kind of like this cool, catchy slogan or whatever, but it actually means something much, much more. It's a catechism on what you believe. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. According to Augustine and many, many other early church writers, that is basically saying, I believe in the full humanity of Jesus, and I believe in the full deity of Jesus in one person, Savior. And so all of a sudden, that takes a lot more meaning um, as, as a believer if you see an ichthus, If you see this and you're saying, basically, I'm with the apostles. I'm with the Christ, not these other people, not these other deceivers. And then uh, you can kind of study the story of the ictus. It It actually went away for a long time and then reemerged in the 70s. And I guess this is kind of a random fact uh, that has nothing to do with today. But uh, in the '70s, there's like Christian concert emerged. It was called the Ictus concert, and that's kind of where it kind of came back. Um, I guess this concert was pretty popular. It was like the Woodstock for Christians, I guess. Um, but hopefully there was much more uh, substance and a whole lot less substances. But anyway, we'll go back. Um, let's read verse three: "And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So anyone who tells you something is true that is in stark contrast to the gospel, that God came down, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died a horrendous death, death rose again on the third day, and is seating, reigning, and ruling at the right hand of the Father is just plain wrong. Anybody that tells you anything other than that right there is wrong. Wrong. And John here says, you were all warned, Paul warned you, I warned you, everybody warned you, and the deceivers are here. He calls these deceivers the antichrists. Now, I don't want to get bogged down on this word, but I do want to give it some air time. This is not the big, scary antichrist monster of revelation, okay? That's not what this is. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, these people are anti-Christians. They're opposing to Christ's message. That is what John is saying here. So verse 4. Little children, you are from, from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John says, believers, don't worry. You will know these jokers when you see them. You got this. He's giving them this message of encouragement. You are from God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have already won. He who is in you is far greater than these knuckleheads because remember, these are children of the devil. And that's what Greg spoke about um, last month. And you, you are children of God. This is where John shows a real pastoral moment. He is instilling confidence in these people, in these people who are terrified that they don't have the goods, in these people that are terrified that they don't know what they believe. So verse 5 says this, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. These deceivers might sound good, they might be motivational, they might have a super convincing message, it might be a super popular message, it might be health and wealth, if you do this you'll be rich, if you do this, if you buy this, you'll be popular. It will be a very convincing message. But then verse 6 says this about verse 5. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So verse 6 says this about verse 5. But we don't need all that. Our reward is not here. We are of God. And whoever is of God knows truth. The truth that we, being the apostles, John being the apostles, proclaimed to you all. John is saying, You know the Spirit, capital S. That is the one who is true. And because you know the Spirit, capital S, you know the false Spirit, that is of error. You'll be able to see that. And if you, or those that are preaching to you, believe the gospel, then you've got it, you've got the goods you are drawing that ichthys thing all over the place. So whatever you're hearing, if whatever you are hearing specific isn't passing the litmus test or maybe like the ichthys test, then it's wrong and don't believe it. So we finally made it. We're here to the application. Have confidence in your belief. John is telling us to have confidence in the belief system that Christ and the apostles through the written word, have told us have confidence in that belief. If you can answer that question, then yes, you have gotten a hold of the real deal. A couple weeks ago, we had a, a an act. Um, Avery Bowles got up here, and she was able to answer that in confidence. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, Alex gave her a doctor and test. He said, "Do you have any hope outside of Jesus?" She said, "No." He said, "Are you trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior?" She said yes. Then she was baptized. Alex legitimately gave her a doctrine test and she passed, saying that she believed. And I think that um, is amazing. And if that is a sign, then she should have confidence in that. And we should have confidence that what Christ did, said, and continues to do is true. Have confidence in what the disciples saw, touched, believed, and shared. If you flip over one page to chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, just a brief, sum- brief summary of it, it says he was in the beginning, and it says he was, or it says we, being the apostles, saw him, heard him, touched him, witnessed those things that he said and did. It says that he was manifested in the flesh as a guy with skin. We saw also his divinity, and all that stuff we saw and heard, we, we pro- are proclaiming to you. And in doing so, you can participate in worship with us. And we are writing these things because it brings us joy to know that you all are participating in this thing we call Christianity. You see, 1 John is saying he was here. He was fully human. He, like, bled and got hungry and walked. But it also said he was divine. And we're sharing these things with you so that you can call yourself a Christian and we can have joy in that. And everything else is just secondary in nature. Everything else is secondary. So application number two, examine what influences you. Take a look at what grips you. The people John were speaking to were at risk of being influenced by great-sounding speakers and popular cultural beliefs and people that they even loved, that were within their very family, just years before. You see, test the things that influence you. Now, I'm not talking about like, you can't be a part of a basketball team because it's not like a Christian-based basketball team. Quite the opposite. You should be on that basketball team. You should be showing Jesus to that basketball team, but examine the things that influence you. Examine what really, really influences you. We should be taking a self-assessment. We should be asking the Holy Spirit to show us our sin, and that's what Lent is about right? We should be taking that self-assessment. We should be asking the Holy Spirit to show us our sin. And if those things that influence you don't point you to the Savior that we need and that we have, then it fails the test. And don't let it influence you. Our influences can be people, things, money, mainstream media, social media, food, politics, whatever. Those things that, that might not be bad for you, but that shake your doctrine, Now, I know it's kind of like funny, right? You might say, Neil, food doesn't shake my doctrine. But I would ask you this how much do you talk about Sunday morning versus how much do you talk about where you're going to eat for Sunday morning or Sunday lunch, right? And I know that's making something simple or something complex into something very simple, but test those things that you actually believe and that influence you. So if you flipped over to 1 John 5, it's likely on the very next page. And we're talking about the last two verses of 1 John 5. And sorry for whoever's going to preach 1 John 5. I'm going to ruin it. Um, But 1 John 5, 21 says this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That doesn't mean those little wood statues. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is don't make God into your image. Don't make God into the things that you would have God do or have your own priorities. Believe in the Christ, not your Christ. And then if you back up just one verse, 520, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So what I'm saying is believe in 520, not 521. And that's what 1 John is saying. And he gives us this short little uh, six verses in the first part of chapter 4 that says believe in the true Christ. And if the true Christ, if, if, if whatever you're hearing or doing or saying doesn't pass that litmus test, then kind of take that back, reflect, repent recalibrate and reprioritize how do you do that the holy spirit now there is a whole lot in these six verses and the holy spirit is a study in itself that you could pull out of this but just know this about the holy spirit when christ rose he left us one of the greatest unfathomable gifts and we should be very very mindful and attentive of the holy spirit with that being said let's pray God, you're such a good, good father. We are so thankful for this season of Lent. We ask you to reveal yourself to us, God. We ask you to reveal the sin that influences us, that entangles us, God. We ask you to help us fight the urge to be blown to and fro by popular culture, by ear-tickling words, and by those who utter good feelings and falsities. Help us to fix our gaze on you, God, who authored and perfected our faith. Only you in your pure divinity, yet full humanity of a human could atone for us. It is only you who continually mediates for our shortcomings. Help us to be attentive to your Holy Spirit, to guide us as we move. Help us to lean into your Holy Spirit and draw us closer to your likeness. God, thank you for sending your son all those years ago to reconcile us. Help us to pine for the return of your son to make this world new, and all the while making his name great here in the present. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, here in a second, Lane's about to sing. The elders are gonna come up. We're gonna take the supper. There is a gluten-free option. Be mindful of that. Um, We also have this black... Table Runner, we've been doing this all Lent. Uh, feel free, if you want to, to come write your sin down on that thing. Uh, if you've been reflecting on what influences you, write down what influences you and cross that sucker out. It's, it's black marker with a black tablecloth. We won't see it at all, uh, and we'll drape it over the cro- cross. Now, it, this is truly just a tablecloth. Like There's nothing magical about it. There's no magic in it. But there is something powerful About admitting your sin. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Feel free to do that. Hit it, Lane.